The Full Exposure Podcast is brought to you by Metro Health, University of Michigan Health, and Dr. Peter Hahn, in appreciation of the creative and artistic visionaries who enrich our lives through cultural connections. Hey, 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 everybody, or should I say zoom, zoom, zoom? Okay, uh, this is uh, the very first Zoom episode I'm releasing. I've done, done, I've given in. I've given in to the pandemic and I've recorded a few episodes now uh, via Zoom. This one with our guest today, Glenn Phillips at Toad the Wet Sprocket. You know I'm from that band. They've sold a gazillion records. They were all over the air in the early 90s. Uh, pretty, pretty amazing artist. Um, if you're really lucky, you know Glenn's solo albums, solo work. Uh, he's one of the renowned singer-songwriters. Um, he certainly is in a very small group of fantastic, great songwriters uh, of the last uh, decade or two. And um, let me just circle back about the pandemic and what it did to the podcast. I, I just hesitated to do sort of these remote interviews, and I don't know why I waited so long, quite frankly. You know, the premise of the podcast, as you know, is uh, somebody comes to my studio or I meet them on location somewhere in the country. We shoot a portrait and then we sit down and talk about whatever we want. But because of COVID and because of the pandemic, I was like, I, I don't know if I want to do Zoom interviews. But man, was I wrong about that. Um, this episode in particular with Glenn Phillips, um, if you're expecting me to ask him about his musical influences or perhaps, I don't know, his favorite Toad song or what it was like to be famous when he was, you know, 17, 18 years old. Uh, this is not that episode. Um, let me backtrack. Let me explain how I even know Glenn in the first place. Um, back in the 2000s, 2002 to 2009 or late 2008, I had an art gallery called the Photography Room. And the photography room uh, was bleeding cash. Uh, selling art in Grand Rapids, especially photographic art, from a very expensive downtown location is not a great business proposition. Uh, took all my money. But uh, I had a friend, Brian Vanderark, who's uh, from the Verb Pipe, lives in Grand Rapids. He said, you should turn the struggling art gallery and open it to small, intimate, acoustic shows uh, it was a very beautiful space. You know, there aren't many listening rooms around the country uh, for singers to perform in quiet, intentional venues. So I did that. Uh, Brian performed. His wife, Lux Land, performed. Um, we had several different artists come. Uh, Glenn Phillips was one of those that we booked. In fact, Glenn Phillips came to the photography room on two occasions, about a year apart, and uh, with his touring friend and supporting musician, Jonathan Kingham, two great guys. And at that time, really, uh, you know, he came to this tiny little venue in Grand Rapids and played for 125 people. Each time it sold out, we had a wonderful time, very intimate setting. I got to know Glenn and Jonathan on each of those visits, had dinner with them. And uh, we stayed in touch. 
Glenn would uh, hit me up years later, even uh, a year ago, ask me if I wanted tickets at the Frederick Meyer Gardens for a Toad the Wet Sprocket show. Like he, he's always remembered me, Kathy, uh, and uh, our family. So um, I, I didn't really try to keep lines of communication open with Glenn, but he would reach out every time that they would come in town. And I always appreciated that. I would see him briefly while he was in town and enjoy the Toad the Wet Sprocket concert or his solo tour that was coming through town. So had some interactions and then uh, knowing that uh, Glenn was not likely to get back to Grand Rapids anytime soon to do the podcast, I thought, let's do a Zoom interview. And I am not disappointed. This conversation, as I said, is not about music per se. Uh, We really cut to the chase of some really um, raw and honest conversation about um, grief, um, divorce, his divorce, uh, and climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, which he did uh, a few years ago, and the benefit of, of being a musician in a time where community is needed in the world, the sense of community, communal participation, and communal thought and compassion is much, much needed in the world. So... I'm going to stop yammering on because the real conversation is right here in front of us. Let's explore the bigger picture via Zoom. Glenn's in Santa Barbara, California. I'm in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Let's dig into this very raw, honest conversation with my friend, Glenn Phillips. It's good to see you. I I just, uh, yeah, we just slightly missed last time you were in Grand Rapids, probably two years ago. Mm-hmm. And then, um, then, then the whole pandemic hit, you know, whatever. As it does. <laughs> As they do. As they do. It's, it's been an exciting, it's been an exciting and challenging year for everyone. And so this looks like a very official place you're in. Looks quite businesslike. Is it? Uh, it's my basement. It's kind of my basement okay. office. It only looks business, I think, because because of the chairs. It's really but, clean. Uh, it's too clean. <laughs> it's it's so not clean. just over there. Just over there, not that clean. I, I can't. have kind of yeah. This is the shit show, right? Over there. <laughs> well, you look at this all those guitars. So great. I mean. Do you play all them, or you just collect, or what um, are you doing? Is it just a uh, pan flute now? No, 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 no. Decoration? I'm not that hippie out. Uh, no, I play... Well, this one I haven't played in a... Uh, the electric I haven't played in a few weeks. Probably the baritone is mostly decoration. I play the acoustic all the time. I play this acoustic that you can't see all the time. And I've been playing the telly more... Uh, I got these pickups in it. I actually, I keep forgetting. I need to write a letter to Fishman telling them how much I love these pickups. Um, yeah. I'd been playing this guitar because it's humbucker and uh, I'm plugging kind of straight into cheap gear for the live casts and all my other guitars buzz like crazy because they're single coil uh, pickups. Uh, uh, well, you sort of lost me there. This would be like me explaining bit rates on video 4k or 6k recording to you maybe you know all about that stuff 
be, well, some, it would almost be as if you had a, um, and now that you say that, I just realized. One second. Much better. Uh, <laughs> I just realized I had something to turn off. Um, it, it, it's, it's more, how can I say? If you had a camera that was like sometimes really cool, but if there's any sun out, there was an insane amount of light leakage and it just right. got completely out of hand. Oh, yeah. Uh, if that makes sense. Well, it's like, it's really cool, but in very limited circumstances. And so for me, this guitar, uh, the single coil pickups, uh, depending on what you're plugged into will buzz like crazy. So if you go to a concert right. and somebody picks up their guitar and they turn it on, it goes, yep. probably single coil pickups and not good power in the venue. And there's no way to work around it. And so I got, the well, that didn't happen in my venue. When back in the day, I, did not, I, did not. I was on acoustic. Yeah, that's playing. true. I think I yeah, was we weren't this we weren't electric <laughs> that one. Yeah. Well, that was. Uh, I'll just reset. I don't. You want to just fire into <laughs> yeah, it because we can, we can just uh, meander back a little bit because um, yeah, I even some of our audience, you know, on this, uh, and we have a decent size audience in Michigan. What's strange is the number two audience that we have statewide is out in California. And I think there's a lot of Michigan folk who move to anywhere in California, but it's like sizably, it's that you'd think it'd be Indiana or Ohio, not Indiana, maybe Illinois, Chicago, Detroit, or uh, mm -hmm. Ohio or something, but it's yeah. not, it's out in California, but it's the sun, it's the power of everything. But um, yeah, I'll just reset. So I, I had a gallery called the photography room I was doing commercial photography to pay the bills. And then I was uh, losing all my money trying to sell art as, as one does. As you like do. a, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, I sort of pivoted. We had a, a, a mutual acquaintance, I think, you know, Brandon, Brian Vanderark from the Verpiper. Uh -huh. at least you had a mutual booking agent and he lives here in Grand Rapids. And he said, you should turn this into a listening room. And that was at a time when there weren't many of these small little intimate rooms around the country. And so we did that and we pivoted. And then I saw you on this roster. I saw you're still with Adam, right? He's still your mm -hmm. booking agent or something. Long time ago. Adam still Bauer. With him. Yeah. <laughs> it would be awkward if you weren't, or it was just, you hadn't updated the site. No. Yes. It would be. <laughs> I, I haven't updated the site as you can tell. I like, uh, my my digital presence is woefully. Uh, no, I find it refreshing. Lacking. <laughs> I well, suppose, anyway, luckily people don't really look at them anymore. But yeah, anyway, if it's on a phone, <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the only time people see things now is on their phone. But anyway, so you, I first met you. I think it was two thousand six or seven. Wow, two thousand seven. I think yeah, it was a long time ago. And you played my venue twice. Sold it out. Jonathan came, Jonathan Kingham, and just kind of hit it out. Hid uh, some Moroccan ribs at Bar Divani. I don't know if you remember that meal. There was these amazing little sp spare ribs that I, I, I could just, I, I should have just sold those instead of art. <laughs> <laughs> I was very passionate no, about it. 
then you would have had to shut down for COVID. It would have been takeout only. You would have had to pivot. <laughs> I would have been and, scrambling for some type of you know driver to pick up the orders. Uh, well, anyway, that's how we connected, and then just you know through great luck, and I think just what I feel about you've always as an artist, whenever I've had any interactions, is you just a, you're good people. And when you come to town, either with Toad or solo, you you'd hit me up. You had my contact info. Somehow you'd remember there's this guy in this family, my wife, Kathy, and you yeah. met uh, her and kids. And you're like, you want to come to the show? I was like, yeah. So that's how we got going. But I'm interested in what's happened in, in the last 10 years or mostly around the pandemic. Yeah. Last 10 years is an awful lot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Mostly around the pandemic. Um, I mean, you know, I was out on tour when things got shut down. I was out on the, uh, doing an East Coast tour with uh, Chris Barron. Um, I had just been able to go. I had a one-off show. Um, I rarely get to play in Europe. I've never had records properly released there and never really built up an audience there, which makes me really sad because I love being in Europe. Um, yeah. But... Uh, I had this one-off in Switzerland, and uh, and Jonathan Kingham had never been there before. He'd never been to Europe in his life, and I just had to, like, instead Make of trying to make any money or anything, I just had to, like, break even and bring him with me. And so we got to have this week in Zurich, which was phenomenal, and there's uh, this really sweet couple um, – out in stance and they they have some shows as well and so got to got to play a couple of shows and and got to watch Jonathan for the first time just see see Switzerland and there's so many things that are just I'm not trying to think how to say it sensical you know right. if that makes sense <laughs> like you know the utilization of public transportation and bicycles and when you're when yeah. you get off at the you know Zurich Central Station there's good organic vegetable stands just at the train station because of course you're going to come home from work and buy a bag of vegetables and carry it home and cook a healthy dinner for your family. And it's just the, all these things and, and just even, yeah, in terms of, uh, you know, infrastructure, architecture, things that are, that make so much sense. <laughs> and and I know. he, as a builder, uh, you know, cause he's been, he basically, you know, builds and rents houses, you know, f fixes places up to, in order to afford being a musician. Uh, yeah. That's his side hustle. And so he just, he responds so well to, to kind of good engineering. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so. I wonder what it would be like to take Jonathan to Europe for the first time. And was it like having a little child or a puppy on a leash? He said. He's just really hot. Like, ah, oh, the coffee's all so good. God, these baked goods. Ah, just, you know, it was great. 100%. Well, so, I took my everything daughter. Everything was, yeah. I took my daughter for the first time, my oldest, Hannah, uh, two years ago. We went to Paris for about, I think mm. I'm, I'm getting warm. Um, went to Paris for about two, just a quick trip. And then we went to Madrid where I've got a lot of connections and family, uh, quasi family over there. And oh, so we sweet. ended up, uh, those, you know, two amazing cities, but to see her in Europe for the first time. And you're right. Everything's amazing, laid out, clean. It's beautiful. The architecture is amazing. And, and there's always that, uh, 
hard reentry into the United States, you know. Um, we and we have a lot of wonderful things. It should be said, but there's something yeah. about being there. The novelty of it is part of it, but also just people have been there a long, long time. We're kind of adolescent uh, at best. And just <laughs> these people are living. It's that thing. You go to Rome and you go like, oh, that's an old looking building. And then you turn around and you go, oh, that's about a thousand years older. Like that's, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> you know, all just on top of each other, right? Just it's like, oh, yeah, I've been never... this out for a while. Yeah, I've never been to Italy, but Madrid uh, and well, I've been to Greece and seen some really, really old things. But the in Madrid, I've spent the most time, and it's just uh, amazing to walk cobblestone streets from the you know twelve or thirteen hundreds, and yeah, just go. There's many, there's many more layers to this life than like what we're just experiencing right now in consciousness. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of blowing, mind blowing for sure. Uh, yeah. And well, and that identity, I, I've done a lot of thinking and, you know, especially in the last year, because there's been so much noise around, like a lot of thinking about community and like, what are the things that bring people together and how do we get that sense of belonging? Right. Um, and I mean, my angle is, often through, you know, music. That's like my, you know, my, uh, you know, what a surprise. My, my personal tool for belonging, right, is singing songs with people. In the last uh, three or four years, I've been doing uh, these community singing uh, choirs. So it's kind of, you know, usually meeting in a friend's living room and we'll have anywhere from, you know, a dozen to 25 people. Um and just singing, they're, they're mostly kind of simple, uplifting songs. They don't tend to have a ton of lyrics. They're usually um, contrapuntal. So instead of, it's kind of hard for non-musicians to sing tight harmony um, because mm -hmm. uh, just the, the, the mind can find it. If everyone's in the same rhythm, moving in the same direction, people will kind of skip around parts if they're not really used to singing together. Um, so it's easy for people to do these melodies that kind of weave around each other and have different rhythms, different, different mm -hmm. movement. Um, and so these songs are like designed to be learned quickly, sung different, uh, sung quickly to be uplifting. So a few musician friends have come and some of my musician friends have kind of shown up and gone like, this is really boring. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, a couple of other of my musician friends have shown up and, and started doing choir leading and the same thing. Oh, really? Um, but it's kind of, it's like, it's kind of like church without any dogma, if that makes yeah. sense. And there's a lot of people who maybe had, you know, grew up in a church and then fell away from it, but they miss the belonging and the togetherness and the, the thing that song provides. And those, you know, uh, we don't, get that. I mean, it, it's strange in American culture, particularly we have like sweet Caroline and bop, bop, bop. Everybody knows how to do that, but we don't have these songs. Like if you go to a bar in Ireland, if you go to a bar and, you know, if you're, uh, most of the world has these songs that are, you know, uh, whether they're, you know, regional or national, um, they're much older than any individual. And they say yeah. something about who you are and everybody knows and everybody can join in. And, um, you know, there are all these kind of 
you know, neurological, physiological benefits to singing with other people. Um, yeah. You know, the, uh, the vagus, vagal nerve, vagal nerve and, uh, you know, your heart rate and your breathing becomes synchronized. There are all these things that happen. And I mean, you know, anybody who's ever been in a church and prayed and everybody's singing a hymn together, there's something, you know, uh, you know, that is carrying everybody away. And that same spirit in, in a different way is very much available to um, people singing together. So mm-hmm. um, I I, I've been something... very curious about that. So when I get my jealousy of European culture, some of it's just about like, oh, you know, your song for right. your town or your you know, particular history, your place, you're able to walk into a room and if somebody starts singing something, you know that that says something about who you are. It's like not just your playlist or the last hit to come through. There's something bigger and older than and deeper than you that actually lets you know something about yourself and where you fit in the world. And I, I think more and more, even with, you know, my kind of pop or folk music, like trying to figure out how it can function more in that way um, because mm-hmm. as kind of a newer country and, and a strongly individual, individualized country and very multicultural con- country, um, you know, we need, we need these things to, to bring us together. Um, yeah. I was going to say here, I think it, culturally there's, there's always something, I always feel it, you know, I'm not a performer by any means and I wasn't, uh, there's always some resistance to, oh, should I let myself go and kind of be swept up into this group sort of vocal thing? And I think live venues, live concerts, is at least in the United States, you don't really see a in a, bub or a pub or a bar in the United States like this song being part of that experience. It could be random, could be whatever. Mm-hmm. But in terms of... Uh, music it's usually now in this anthem arena small theater type of thing mm-hmm. where it seems appropriate or at least easier for people to get swept in because they might know the song they might know whatever but what you're talking about is so much deeper culturally in terms of storytelling yeah to a, a sense of place and time well and and beyond that i think there's something it's this way of kind of sharing and transmitting a, a flow state. I mean, when um, when a, a practiced artist of some kind, um, you know, people talk about. There's a lot of emphasis. Sorry, I'm you. A lot of sentence fragments here, but I'm trying to put the thought together. We have a lot of cultural emphasis on specialness and on being seen, and so this idea that when you're performing, uh, you have the spotlight. Right, and that um, you are, you know, doing something extraordinary, something to be seen. I mean, and uh, so there's this weird, you know, dance between the the ego that may push somebody to learn how to have a certain kind of excellence, right, and to even dare to get on a stage and and be vulnerable in that way, or. Uh, mm-hmm. But then there's, uh, most musicians I know, when they talk about their greatest moments, it's not that everybody was cheering or looking at them, it's that they ceased to exist. Um, That when you're in the flow, you know, and I'm sure you have this at times, when you know your tools well enough, when your eye is honed enough, when you're shooting something and 
you are the thing you're shooting and there's no, like, you know, you can go into these moments where your fluency and your knowledge and the attention you're paying uh, means that you're not actually really involved anymore. Uh, you become an instrument for something to move through and for a, a kind of attention that starts to feel effortless, but is also acting at a very high level. And um, I think you're hitting on an interesting point, a little tangent we could go down just as artists, because um, I think that most professionals, whether it's music, photography, golf, uh, basketball, uh, painting, there is an element in what they do that looks effortless. It seems effortless. And you think as an amateur, you can do that. And I think that that's what I most admire in performers, seeing them perform. It, is, it doesn't even have to be a peak performance, but there's something that is so, as you say, when they're in a state of flow that it becomes this transcendent, mm -hmm. not as physical mechanically, getting through something. And I've often had photo shoots that might've been with somebody who is fairly high profile or well-known. And I only had a limited time and I literally can't tell you what happened during that time, except that I got some good portraits out of it. And I know that there was some <laughs> chit chat, but I can't remember what happened, but I had this cachet of uh, 20 years as a photographer that led me to that moment to let go of worrying about buttons and knobs and just being present with that person enough to get a portrait. And I can only conje conjecture that that's somewhat of a similar experience when you're in a state of flow on stage. Yeah. I mean, there's, I just went with actually for a walk, um, a friend of mine, Chris Orwig, who's a portrait photographer in Santa Barbara and he's done, he's mm -hmm. like, these, there's these pictures of like Jack Johnson and like, he does those really Jack Johnson, Ben Harper, where they just look kind of angelic, like kind of these peaceful eyes. And, and he, you know, half of portrait photography, right. is just putting people at ease, being aware yeah. of what's happening and having the person you're with get in a state where they're not posing anymore. And they were relaxed to a point where they're revealing, like it's a, yeah, but yeah, the the disappearing is a big thing. I think what I was going to say earlier in terms of, you know, for not the effect it has on me, but the effect it has on other people. There's this certain bit of people getting swept up into that, but also, like you said, in the large venue, um, you stop worrying about singing along because you don't feel exposed. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's something about being in a small group where I think you push up against your fear of that and meet it and yeah. get to sing and, and risk singing badly. A lot of the people in my, you know, who come, it's a drop in choir. They, they don't have what you would call technically great voices. Um, right. But they get so much joy out of doing that and out of actually pushing up against that specific fear even and mm -hmm. um, kind of claiming their right to open their mouth and make sounds. And, and, so I think there are these ways, once again, it's that difference in people thinking, ah, oh, being on stage would be the thing, but they do the same thing in the audience of ceasing, yeah. ceasing to be in a certain way and just becoming the song. And um, there's a, yeah, a lot of different ways, I think, to achieve that. But I, I even have my own, you know, kind of new agey thoughts on 
purely acoustic music versus amplified music. And mm. um, let's just press pause on that because I, sorry, Glenn, I want to ask yeah. you really quick because going back to this larger experience versus maybe a communal choir. Yeah. I think it's easier somewhat for people to let themselves go in a larger arena because it's so hard to hear your voice in that mm -hmm. moment, unless you're really trying to be on top of the thousand people within your immediate vicinity, there's some layer of protection, but you're also sucked up into this uh, community of voice where yours doesn't matter. It matters, but it doesn't matter that much. And you, so yeah. the process of just saying, okay, totally. I can let this go. No one's going to judge me because everyone, and I can't really, nothing so distinctive that you can point it out and go, that's fantastic. Or that's terrible. Like they shouldn't <laughs> sing anymore, you know? Yeah. No, so. everybody's just into it and it's fine. I mean, one of the most beautiful concerts I ever went to was um, Jeff Mangum from uh, Neutral Milk Hotel. Mm, this yeah. obscure indie band that broke up and then they became huge while they were gone and nobody thought they'd ever get to see him play. And it was amazing seeing all these hipsters, like, you know, super cool people, like just openly weeping, standing at this acoustic concert, singing every word and just crying for like two hours as they listened yeah. to it. It was fantastic. I mean, and that, that so freedom is something special. I think there's something about, um, it's like, there's something about when your only cover is that there's 15 other people in the room. Like there's a little more bravery required and there's something, I mean, this is another thing I've been thinking about in terms of, um, you know, ceremonial work, rites of passage, things that kind of pull us over the edge. And there's a certain degree of arduousness that seems to take people further. <laughs> uh, and it doesn't have to be like, you know, like I'm thinking of, you know, and like where you don't have to be yeah. flagellating yourself or doing things, but there's something about, um, pushing up against a little bit of discomfort that I think amplifies, um, amplifies something. Um, there's no wrong way to do it. I think yeah. I mean, just letting go in a big concert hall is great. But uh, yeah, that idea of, you know, belonging. And frankly, the people I knew who were into like raves, you know, EDM and all that, I'm like, how can you, like, I really don't get it. They're like, yeah. the thing is you go and you dance and there's so many people and it's so loud that you forget you exist and you just start moving and you stop worrying about what it looks like. And that's heaven. Right. Yeah. That's like right. that, um, you know, that it's, and what, what I love about that is that, that, that type of happiness is not about a satisfaction of the ego. Uh, right. it's not about the acquisition of something or being seen in some particular way. It's about letting go of the need to be seen. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in the same way, like there's a Buddhist teacher, Wes Nisker, who talks about, um, why we're so happy when we get something we want, you know? You order something on Amazon and it comes and you open the box and you go like, ah, and you feel really happy for a minute. And his argument is that you are not happy because you have the thing you want. You are happy because you forget to want anything for a couple minutes. 
And you wanted something when you ordered it, you wanted it up until you got it and you got it. And all of a sudden you don't want anything. Right. That's, that makes you so happy. And then you think, you know, this would really go better. With it. And then you're unhappy again. Right. It's just about not wanting. I was listening to, it reminds me a little bit in a circular way about, uh, I was listening to a podcast by Sam Harris and he was thought, just talking about free will and that we really don't have free will. Mm-hmm. And he's into meditation and all this other stuff, which I'm, I'm just learning about really. But uh and it just was this mind-blowing thing about choice. And we're really going inside the, the brain now and like consciousness and free will and what, and he believes it doesn't really exist because yeah, it, it's, it's amazing, but I can't explain it, but I don't know if you're familiar with him. Well, his he, point is your neurological wiring, your lifelong history. Um, there are things we wish we would have done differently, but Often, if we if we could have, we would have, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when it you know when it comes to us making these choices, the forces pushing us, if they're biological, psychological, whichever they are, um, we can't undo. We can do things that I think allow us to make different choices in the future. Um, and this is mostly talking about in terms, you know, it's like when we talk about free will. I don't know. Some of it is thinking we're doing. Um, yeah, we're making all the choices for ourselves. Some of it is about regret, right? And, and wishing we would have made different choices. I spend a lot of, and, and unnatural amount of time on, on regret personally, trying to wean myself mm-hmm. away from it. Um, but yeah, in, in certain ways I would, I would kind of agree. What is, is, you know, mm-hmm. uh, we view time from this linear perspective and, um, you know, it's, we're going to do the things we're going to do, but I think we, we open our chances to make different choices, uh, to expand the palette of what we do by educating ourselves and by challenging our, Yeah, that's his main thing in that. He's, he's an interesting guy. Yeah, for sure. And at some of it, some way over my skis, you know, I like, uh, when you have, it doesn't matter what the topic is, but when someone is such an expert in a particular field that's complicated and takes years to really think about how to communicate certain ideas that are so mm-hmm. uh, complicated to the average Joe, which is me. Um, uh, but I see the doors opening. You know what I mean? The 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 window into something I didn't understand yesterday there's a little more light in that particular subject, whether it be music or uh, meditation or, or consciousness or being present. I want to circle back to two quick things. When you, you were talking about this resistance and things that were hard in terms of, we were talking about communal singing at the time, but it was about um, getting through something to experience the other side with a little more clarity, right? I think that was essentially things we talked about. And I I think that happens in every aspect of life in terms of how you struggle. Like if, if, and even that Amazon package making you happy for a moment, um, there's, there's things you can't appreciate unless you are able to be tempered and tested 
and fucked up and whatever it might be. And whether it's now you're wrestling with certain areas of regret in life, but there's another side. There's always the contrast to the enlightenment of working through something that's difficult. And I don't know if it's more about age. I'm 52. I think you're in the same wheelhouse in the fifth. Yeah. So I've been thinking a lot differently the last, maybe it's partly pandemic, but it's also like the, I think it's like 45 ish on. I started to think a little differently about the world, but I'm just wondering how you reflect the last, whatever, five, six years where you're like, there's certain things I appreciate more, but it took a lot of pain to get there. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, thanks for kids, joining the podcast, Glenn. My kids grew. Uh, my, you know, and started going away to college. So there's just the grief of um, that period of your life ending and wondering what your purpose is, right? And for me, particularly, um, as my kids needed my attention less, um, I have a very, or I would say, a fairly regimented life when I'm on tour, right? I mean, you got to, especially solo tour, I, you wake up, you work out, you drive, you get into the venue, you eat, you play, you sign things, you talk, you settle out the show, you go to get as much sleep as you can, and then you do it again. And it's just like, um, everything is about actionable, immediate tasks. And if you don't do one of them, the day really doesn't work. You got to you got to sit down with the manager and get paid at the end of the night. You got to play a show and you got to give it your all. You got to be nice to people no matter what mood you're in. You got to eat. You got to stay healthy. You got to get from one place to another. They're, they're, none of them are um, optional. And so I go home and it's like, oh, what do I have to do today? Well, I should write the best song I've ever written. Alone. No pressure. No pressure. And so when I had small kids, it was nice because there was always, you know, I just, I loved having small kids because you just get to play and improvise and cook them food and take care of them. And then they got older and I started to get weird and depressed. And, uh, and then uh, to a degree where I guess six going on seven years ago now, my wife and I split up. Um, so all kids are adults out in the world now. Um, and I had a lot of inquiry to do after losing my, my marriage. Um, I thought I was, I took it really for granted that I would be married for life. And so, um, and I found actually that grief literature served me far better than divorce literature did. I, I ended mm -hmm. up reading more like Stephen Jenkinson or uh, um, what's his name? Or Pima Chodron, who's a Buddhist teacher who talks a lot about loss and mm -hmm. kind of uncomfortable places. Um, uh, Martin Prechtel, who has a book called The Smell of Rain on Dust, which is all about grief. Uh, and, and poetry uh, came to me. It was, you know, Mary Oliver all of a sudden got really important to me and uh, mm -hmm. David White. And um, so you know, trying to figure out not just kind of getting older and these, you know, chapter of my kids, but, um, you know, and even in this new, I've been in a relationship for three years, just I find my biggest barrier is allowing myself to be fully committed and trust uh, because mm -hmm. the pain of losing 
my home and my, my identity, I mean, was such an intense, it's the largest, I mean, anyone who has been through a divorce and, and we did it without undue, you know, emotional violence or cruelty to each other, but it's still, I've never understood like my friends who got divorced and then got married a year or two later. I'm like, how do you, not, not right. how do you trust the person, but how do you trust that like I'm still reeling from the agony of that loss. And here I am right. with this incredibly wonderful, kind, loving, uh, honest, good woman. I couldn't ask for better. And I'm just like, no, that's why she's dangerous. I mean, from the <laughs> second I kissed her, I'm like, oh my God, this isn't going to be dating. This is the real deal. And this could ruin me. Sure. And some part of me has been like, just going, don't do it. It'll hurt. One of you like this. That's the funny thing. The first thought I had was this could last 20 years or more. Get out now because right. it'll end in tears. And it was sure. like, wait. So my instinct is this is really good and could last a long time. Sure. But if I give my heart completely to her, then she, if she dies before I do, that'll be terrible. If I die before her, that'll be terrible. Like, right. Life well, will be changed. And, and like, this is every, you know, the, the, the spiritual practices I'm the most into are about this very thing, right? Which is like, everything is transitory. Everything will change. Everything is always changing. And if you hold on to it, it's agonizing. Yeah. So you need to show up in this moment. My friend uh, Natalia Zuckerman, one of her lyrics is, I'll, I'll promise forever one day at a time. <laughs> right, uh, exactly. It's just like... That's all you can do because you don't know what'll happen tomorrow. But like, if you don't show up now, once again, my girlfriend always says, the way you live your day is the way you live your life. Like, you don't know how long right. you got. So, well, it's showing funny up that that becomes presence, increasingly important. <laughs> so. Well, you're talking about just the absolute panic and fear of vulnerability to be that, that it keeps you from uh, actively, keeps you from being present to enjoy right now. Like all we have right now is this Zoom call. You know, it's like mm -hmm. there's things happening upstairs. There's things outside of my consciousness that I can't comprehend. I have friends. It always blows me away. I have friends in Madrid right now, you know, turning in for the night and they are experiencing their whole other lives. But all we can focus on, like your girlfriend says, is uh, you live your day as your life. So, but it's, I think it's the power. And I think that, when I ex have experienced um, those sort of catastrophic events and they've related to the health of our kids, which yeah. I could not control. Right. So it was, that would, yeah, but, but my point is only that um, I think grief, grief counseling or grief things to help you through grief are more universal and I think more accessible. I think, for us, it was very hard to get a lot of religious platitudes thrown at us, like God has a plan for your daughter, Faith. He's touched her in some way, or he won't give you more than you can bear. And these things ring so hollow and empty. And I, I really turn towards a, a process of uh, letting go of things I couldn't control, but what could I focus on mm -hmm. to make the next 
out in the early stages, hour better, two hours better, a, a day better. <clears throat> and so in any event, I think in your experience and that loss that you said, like it is about grief and it's about moving forward around those things, but you're also being tempered. And that's why I was thinking about the contrast of, you know, you have to go through this pain to appreciate something else because you're yeah. so in time. Yeah. Well, uh, in grief in particular, you don't grieve what you don't love. Like right. grief is a sign that you love something that is changing in a way that you don't want it to. You, right. you love something that is moving away from you or you love something that is in pain and you want to protect, right? Like, so grief is a sign and deep grief is a sign. I mean, you can be dramatic and whatever, but deep, deep grief is a symptom of deep love. And, and there's this way of when I've been in my best states and I still oscillate, I still... I fight with depression. I can't pretend I've like mastered depression. Um, but what I have found is I can contrast, I, I'm becoming more aware of what my mind says to me when I, when I am depressed. Um, and you know, both my mental habits around it and the kind of feeling state of it, the body, the serotonin levels, all these other things. Mm -hmm. Um, but that there's, in my best moments, I have been able to take deep grief and deep pain and let it expand me, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and let that actually give me some sense. There's that. There's a great Thich Nhat Han poem, uh, "Call Me by My True Names," uh, that talks about uh, what is it? My grief is a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Uh, my love is a river, so. Uh, so wide it makes flowers bloom all over the earth. Uh, call me by my true name so I can feel my joy and sadness at one, as one, and the door, doors to my heart will be opened. Um, and it's this, you know, that they, they are actually in, intertwined in a deep way. And that's, you know, Buddhism gets talked about, I think, in the Western world in a very simplified way. And there's something but that, that it comes to about, you know, suffering is this holding on. But it's not like you're going to, when they talk about happiness, I feel like happiness um, in the Western world is when you get what you want, then you're happy. And happiness in the Buddhist world is when you are present in the moment, you see that you don't really exist and things around you don't listen and you exist uh, with the joy and the happiness all as part of something much larger and more complex. <laughs> and, um, well, I think and, that and pursuit capacity in there. Yeah. That pursuit of culturally in, in the States, at least of what you should feel or what you should have achieved to make you happy. Uh, it feels like a, you know, one of those sugar highs that just crashes or it's at Amazon. Like it's an empty, you know, it's, not all of it, but, but certainly if you just buy in and if you're mindless, it's like you need to uh, just, you know, embrace capitalism and mm -hmm. make as much as you can and acquire what you can. And it really sort of ignores the basic um, wholeness of, uh, of a human. It doesn't nourish that part of ourselves, at least that pursuit. And, uh, it's a conundrum. And I think it's why I, you know, 
we have such a hard time pivoting uh, as well, a country and, or politically, culturally, all that. Yeah, I mean, I would even say, you know, as a non-Christian who is a Jesus a Jesus fan, I guess you could say, like, I see, you know, thinking this weekend, I was thinking about the Stations of the Cross. And it's like, and, uh, you know, that there is so much in the story of Jesus that, that to me, uh, because I've never been kind of fixated on this singular act of salvation, and, and I'm sympathetic to the translations, right? These two things, like love the Lord, you know, I will tell you these two things and they are, they are the same or they are alike, you know, I don't know precise translation, but love the Lord God with all your heart. And the second part is love your neighbor as you love yourself. Mm-hmm. And saying basically loving the Lord God is the same as loving yourself, is the same as loving your neighbor because they're all the same thing. And from my kind of slightly more Eastern, you know, perspective, I go like, oh, that makes total sense to me. Um, I was trying to recall, I have some recollection though, sorry to interrupt, but that yeah. you were, were you were raised Catholic or practicing? No. Were you hard? No. Okay. Maybe I Not got Not at all. Twisted. I was raised uh, in a, a very kind of secularized Reformed Judaism. So it was okay. not, I was never told, was told this was a more, it was cultural, um, as opposed to uh, that there was, you know, an absolute true God. I was told, I had a lot of questions early on and I was told like, don't, don't worry about it. It's just a bunch of stories. It's where we came sure. from. Don't worry right. about it. Do the right thing. Pe- treat people well. Uh, it doesn't matter if it happened or not. <laughs> and so, right. Okay. I could deal with that. I like the songs and the dances. And then my dad uh, gave me, you know, probably when I was 10, uh, took me to the local Zen priory for meditation courses, uh, gave me a copy of the Tao Te Ching, um, gave me books by uh, Idris Shah, who is a, a, a Sufi writer. Um, yes, mm. And so he he gave me this education in Eastern religion very early on too. It wasn't pushy about it, but that hit me... Uh, much more deeply in terms of, you know, uh, a type of spirituality that resonated with me. And then probably when I was about 18, um, because living in a Christian culture, I started, um, you know, I read uh, William Sloan Coffin. You know, I didn't go like full mainstream uh, Mm -hmm. evangelical Christianity, but I read William Sloan Coffin and then uh, didn't make it all the way through the Bible, I will confess. Uh, but then I got into Eileen Pagels, uh, who's a Gnostic scholar, and she okay. is a believer. She's really interesting because she studies. She's a professor of early Christianity, uh, but she is also a, a, a Christian, and so she writes with both this historical point of view. But she's not writing from like a skeptical, a skeptical point of view. She's writing mm-hmm. as a deep scholar, but. Um, and yeah, she had a book called Adam, Eve and the Serpent, another one uh, like called The Origin of Satan, like she really fascinating books. And hmm. so I read her and I, I, I became like more curious about early Christianity and Apocrypha. And, and for me, like the story of Christ, like once again, felt very human. You know, we go through these trials and uh, we find our center uh, through these things that happen. And so uh, you know, uh, even the the story of 
you know, the, these ideas of shame, right? Like, you know, being put up on the cross was supposed to shame you, shame your family. And to mm-hmm. simply say like, no, no, you guys, you guys lost, you know, you're jerks. <laughs> uh, we, we, he actually won uh, because he kept his heart and he kept right. his, his faith and his humanity in the face of your cruelty. That's the win. And that to me is an incredibly human story. An incredible, a very universal story, and speaking truth to power. Well, it's almost your own peril. And, it's almost a blending of, of, you know, Eastern religions as well. I mean that that uh, humility and uh, in the face of that cruelty. I mean, it applies. There's a lot of uh, commonalities about human, just humanness around the world. I mean, that's the common thread, the universal, mm-hmm. uh, whatever that is. And with Jesus, but, uh, non-duality yeah. as well. There's, I wish I could remember that there was a book I read recently and it was by, I believe she was an Episcopalian minister, um, but it was about um, Jesus and non-duality and kind of, he, he would have been culturally exposed actually to more Eastern thought and um, and so much of what he talks about has this kind of almost, I mean, I, I, he wouldn't have been exposed to Zen, but almost like a koan where it's this, you know, statement to kind of knock you out of complacency, things that sound yeah, impossible or bro- like in the, in the kind of leave you spiritually confused and having to kind of find your grounding again. And, um, and that idea of non-duality and once again statements of you know that would have been super uh jarring to the jews at the time you know to hear like i am god um my personal suspicion and this is me as an outsider so i can say it but is that he was also saying like what isn't whatever hasn't been everything is god right so you can awaken to this (laughs) or or you can you can stay deluded and it doesn't mean you're special. It doesn't mean you're different, but it means you can hopefully love more freely and completely and unconditionally everything around you at all moments. And, and, you know, Mm. so I, I see a lot in there, but also in terms of that, his story and his suffering, um, that there, there is so much in there of the human experience of loss, of cruelty. What do you do mm. with governments, with torturers, with those who would tear you down for speaking truth? And how do you mm. hold on to that? And it's a large part of really Christian identity is that, that martyrdom, that idea of, you know, by holding to the truth, you put yourself at risk. Um, right. If you take a, a sense of victimhood out of that, it's also just saying this is your responsibility, uh, you know, um, if you're going to wake up, you're going to show up and it's mm-hmm. hard. Uh, and you don't, right. everybody doesn't pat you on the back. You, you might yeah. get across. <laughs> it's, it's very true. I just want to double back and clarify something, if not for you, for, for the listeners. Like when, when people were telling me what I refer to as empty platitudes, I, I didn't, I'm not referring to the people that were offering those. No, I, th- I no, took them sure. in, in full, full intention of them trying to offer some comfort, but in that comfort's hard. Been, yeah, because <laughs> you don't know what to say, so you f- kind of fall into these 
things that you say at these particular times. And, but over time, they just accumulated and became something I resented, not the people, but just the notion that, um, that a God would uh, make my child unlike most other children to get my attention or to uh, challenge me in some way or test mm -hmm. me. And I just thought that is sadistic bullshit. I don't believe in a God like that. Like I can't, I, why would, what, what an abusive animal that God must be to harm a child in the womb so that I might give him more attention. And mm -hmm. I just found that's where I vacated that where I was like, peace out. I don't understand. I'm going to just set this aside. I've got a lot of, yeah. I've got a lot on my plate to get through. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to take care of my kids right I'm now. Just gonna, yeah. I'm just going to try to make sure uh, I, I still have a home and I yeah. still have a family. But uh, anyway, I want to find, uh, there's a podcast I want to find and send to you that I listened to recently. I wish I could remember this woman's name. She's um, a, I think she's a Canadian musician. Um, and she had two children die and also uh, is an amputee. She lost a leg to cancer when she was uh, like 13, I want to say. Mm -hmm. And so... Oh, it was actually, uh, of all things, it was, uh, it's called The Allusionist, as in to mm -hmm. allude to something. The yeah. Allusionist. Oh, I love Ellen that Ellen Saltzman title. is her name. And she's, she's, uh, yeah, she's an etymologist. She studies language and she studies the origin of words, how we talk about what we talk about. And it was, sure. uh, it's this whole story, but this woman talking about yeah, people always saying like, oh, everything happens for a reason. And just all the things. And like, what would she want to hear? And she just remembers being at a park and saying, you know, somebody's, oh, do you have children? And there's always like, well, <laughs> yes, but... And then do you tell her about the second one? And then and then what's the reaction? And that people want to say something. And, and that's the thing. It's like, once again, all the intentions are good. Uh, yeah. And... Everything happens for a reason. It's like, no, sometimes it doesn't. I'm going to make the right. best of it. I'm right. making the best of it. But no, it happened because biology is hard and all living things yeah. die and it's unpredictable and it's wonderful that any of it ever works. And, but, yeah. and you know, with the leg. And she said, just finally, one woman just said, oh, that must feel horrible. Right. And she said, yes. And then they talked about other things. It was right. like, okay, <laughs> like, or, it, you know, it must be terrible. Is there anything I can do? Yeah. And if yeah. you have an answer to that, then great. And if you don't, it's like, cool. Do right. you need to talk about, like, I'm here for you and I can't do anything about it. And you must be in a lot of pain. I see your pain. It's, it's so it just true. is. And it's so hard it's for just, us to sit there and deal with that. And I'm, I've, Tried to borrow that at times where, uh, you know, one of my daughters, uh, you know, we have three in face doing great, by the way, she's 15, great. And she's in high school, but you know, she's got her own world and, uh, her own needs, but I mean, fantastic. I, I can't, I, if you're in town, I'd love for you to meet her because you'd be like, I can't believe this, but she, um, but I remember my older girls are, I, I just, sometimes I'm like that. It just sucks. 
I don't know what to tell you. I don't, I can't make it better. I want to listen and help, but sometimes you can't control something, especially other people or relationships. It just sucks until it doesn't suck anymore. It's hard to tell that to an 18 or 19 or 21 year old sometimes because you don't, they don't have quite the time and uh, they don't have the cash of life experiences where they can relate to that so much. They just want it to be better. But And there's belonging as well. I mean, I just played, the only show I've played since this started, I went, I don't even know if it was a show, it was a memorial for Charlotte Figgy, who was, um, she had, uh, I, can't, I never say it right, Dravet syndrome? Dravet mm. syndrome? So okay. it's this really intense form of pediatric epilepsy. And she was the oh, girl wow. who kind of started the uh, CBD revolution. Her mm. her parents yeah. went went to Colorado. My friends, the Stanley brothers, made the medicine for them, uh, and gave her. She passed away of COVID last year at age thirteen. So, oh, my um, gosh. But she lived mostly seizure free uh, from you know from the age of six, thanks to CBD, and uh, thanks to the chance they took. But so there's this whole community surrounding the realm of caring was the nonprofit that they built around that, and um, it's these amazing parents because these parents have they've seen the doctors, they've had everybody's pity they've you know and and Mm -hmm. especially seeing charlotte's parents and their absolute refusal to be pitied uh, yeah was really beautiful (laughs) and they're like uh and there's something about uh heather jackson as well who runs realm of caring and her son was i think their third and so there's this community out there of all these you know parents of kids who've had these you know really severe epilepsy um Mm -hmm. variations and they're they're a stunning group of people, and they're they're I think even more so because of the community they found. Because they all ended up in this same town to get the medicine, mm-hmm. they also ended up having you know these really regular gatherings, and so it was support for all the siblings. Yeah, you know, and it's hard to be a sibling when you're yeah, you know, when your brother or sister is like taking up all the room, both medically and attention yeah. wise, internally and externally, yep. and. There's not as much oxygen left in the room. And, and actually one of, one of my oldest, uh, Hannah, our oldest, one of her good friends uh, all through middle school, through high school, and, and they still will see each other occasionally now. But uh, his brother had severe autism. So they just had this common language. They're each the firstborn in the family. They each had uh, a younger sibling just, uh, they wouldn't, they don't lament it because it's the reality, but it's at the same time. And you they love had your the, brother or your sister. Yeah, <laughs> of course. And you're not going to, you know, say you're not getting enough attention, but they had that commonality and that, that community, that mini community just between two teens was, uh, pivotal for them you know and i think it's uh yeah amazing and i uh, i just share with you one other story that happened that i uh, you talked about the parents like refusing to be uh, uh unpitiable <laughs> you know or they, they were uh-huh. would refuse to be pitied but um early on so faith had that in utero stroke she needed some brain surgery like right out of the 
womb and I, she was in a NICU. She was out of intensive care, but was in NICU. And I would go every night up there after closing hours. You could just go up to the hospital and we lived like a mile and a half away. And I was like, I'll just hold her all night because I wasn't going to sleep anyway. Mm-hmm. So I'd leave my wife at home. And we had one other, uh, <clears throat> Kathy would stay uh, with the girls and try to get some rest and get up for the next day. And anyway, I'm sitting there. There's twins across the way, twin boys. And I got to know this woman community, right? Uh, yeah. You know, all have kids in NICU and these kids are in some level of crisis, some terrible, some some are fine. They just need a little help, little time, little time out before they go into the world. But anyway, I was sitting there and struck up a conversation with her. And one of the, one of the twins was in the intensive care and she was holding the, the twin, the other twin boy. And I was holding faith and we're just, it's probably two, three in the morning. And she has this bandana on you know, handkerchief bandana. And eventually she, she shares with me that the the one twin probably isn't going to make it. And, uh, that she's battled cancer through this whole pregnancy, delivered these kids. And now she's faced with this moment. And I, it was something that happened. Like it was almost, um, it was palpable in a way that I haven't experienced very often in my life. Like this is, I am changed by this encounter that I had with her. And I just decided that this was going to have silver linings that, um, that I would uh, not, not complain. Although I revised that later that it's okay to complain. Depends who you're complaining to. You actually or have you're to. you're complaining about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah. I wasn't going to complain about this, you know, that I that it looked like it, uh, we yeah. might have a more positive outcome. But there's always a worse circumstance. There's always something more horrible. There always is. But your reality is your reality. And at the same time, it's hard to uh, move out of what is traumatic into, mm-hmm. well, your album into the new, right? So, yeah. or, um, I also but anyway, that, that there's was, this yeah. part of it that's even seeing a person like that and like having those moments. And it depends on how, how someone's carrying it sometime too. But I think there's a rawness, you know, there's the thing that happens, you know, like my dad died at 59. He was not expecting to die. He didn't pay enough attention to his body, had, colon cancer just ignored it never had a colonoscopy and then by the time he just keeled over one day and it was like you know he was stage four and so he lived a few months later Uh, but pretty quickly he got it together with like he he had to be okay with it because it's what was you can't spend too long and you have and he died really beautifully i got to sit next to him and he was very ready you know, I have a friend um, in Portland right now. He's a really wonderful guy, younger, you know, mid-50s, who once again just discovered he's going to die probably in the next... As soon as I get my second shot, I'm going to go up and just go see him again. And um, and once again, kind of... I've seen a number of friends, especially as I get older, oscillate between 
you know, the, the terror and the, I love my life. I want to hold on. And this like, okay, I got to, now is all there is and will ever be. I get that now. I'm going to show up. And I can see as well with that woman and her kids, like you could go like, there's the part of you that's maybe the comparative, like it could be so much worse. And there's also probably the part of you going like, oh my God, I'm holding this precious child. She is holding this precious child. Like this is, this is life. This is the, this is actually why we're here and what we're doing. And this isn't wrong. This is like, you know, my girlfriend will talk about un- unhappiness is a failure to, uh, a failure to accept reality, right? Which most Buddhist teachers talk about. It's like, it is what it is. All right. So control your controllables and show up. And I, I just think there are moments like that too that just bring you so much into like that that somehow shatter the self-pity and the the worry about the future and the regret about the past and can bring you to that moment where I am so glad I have this like I'm glad I have this pain, <laughs> like, you know? Like, right, right, yeah. It's weird. It's trippy. It's weird. And, well, and, and those other moments people will can talk, pass. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, other people will talk about addiction. They'll go, I, I, I wouldn't not want to be an addict, you know? Like, it, they're out of, they're in sobriety, but they're like, I would never want, you know what I mean? So they're, they've accepted this thing, but because, again, just getting through contrast, those contrasts, but also, uh suffering, any kind of suffering opens other doors. There has to be something on the other side. Otherwise, what's the point? What's the balance? There's part of me that really wants to have never been divorced and to never have had that loss. And there's another part of me that's like, I was so complacent. I would never have started waking up. Yeah. I don't know what would have made me do it. And I needed to, I'd had a really easy life and I'd gotten really used to complaining about it. And I needed to actually get kicked in the balls and mm. have to recover, <laughs> yeah. you know? And it's a process. It's not like a, a flip a switch, but, um, mm-hmm. well, I want to be respectful of your time, but I, I really wanted to ask you about one thing. Yeah. And that was, uh, what did you learn by climbing Mount Kilimanjaro? Um, that was an interesting experience. I, I, so I went there with my friend Tom Cole, um, and he's I've known him since I was eighteen. He started working in Africa. I mean, his his father um, actually uh, took the family back and forth. He was an art historian and, and specialized in African art, and so um, and Tom is, works in agriculture. So, uh, mostly food security. So, uh, these days he does a lot of consulting, uh, for like the UN for refugee camps. So for the gardens that people, like one of his big thing currently was Sudanese refugees and they're given land to farm. And he's actually developed a permaculture system that's finally, um, starting to be more regularly implemented and it's apparently like the most successful food program they've had because it's like how to do intensive like multi-layered farming in Mm -hmm. very small areas how to be aware of drainage instead of kind of ignore everything and um, and also ways of talking to these displaced people that ask them to observe and come up with solutions instead of telling them how it's done and throwing a bag of seed of something they don't eat at them, you know, mm-hmm. oh, you eat sorghum? Here's wheat. Enjoy. 
<laughs> um, you know, and, and so we're helping. We're helping. <laughs> really, somebody gave us all this stuff. And so he's like, "How do you speak to people with?" You know, he's an amazing guy, and uh, his brother was actually one of the first people who brought up. Uh, you know, the concept of ecological justice and, you know, how those who are most disenfranchised tend to see, uh, tend to be the canary in the coal mine when it comes to ecological destruction. Um, and his brother died in a car crash in Uganda. Um, and he'd planned ever since he was like 18 and he was at school in Kenya and there was one day where the clouds cleared and he actually could see Kilimanjaro all the way from like Nairobi. And he's like, I'm going to climb that with my brother. And so, um, when he turned 50, uh, his wife was like, you're going to do it this year. You're never going to do it. And so we had this group of eight friends and I would say the most incredible thing was just seeing his face at the summit. And him thinking of his brother and having this community of men around him who went halfway across the world to do this walk with him. And I think it's my favorite thing is seeing, like, honestly, I think increasingly, uh, and I've, you know, could talk about a bunch of things, but kind of outside of like my concert world, I love places where people are free to weep openly and die yeah. and not apologize for it. Right. And uh, I could tell you about grief ceremonies, all these other things, but just seeing him at the top of that mountain let go completely and, you know, fulfill this pact he had with his brother, this promise he'd made to himself, uh, his lifelong tie to, to Africa and, you know, the, the guys, as we were walking up, they were like, there's a white dude who speaks Swahili. Like, what's up? <laughs> like, and, you know, they um, they never had a group like ours. They were, uh, it, it was a lot of fun. And, um, but that was so the shared a lot experience of for him. That. But yeah, I the mean, shared experience. I, 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 so that yeah. was the community part for me. Um, it was, the the final ascent um was was a very it was a beautiful experience in that um you could only be in the present tense uh you know one breath per step and if you went up a rock that was a little you know that was that high it was in an in and an out breath and uh if you stopped you'd freeze and if you went too hard, you'd boil over. And so it's like, you know, pole pole, they always say, slowly, slowly. Um, it's not a uh, an athletic thing so much as it's a mental thing. And um, you're alone with your own thoughts. And there's times where, at, at best, you kind of stop thinking. And I actually, um, midway up, I started... I just heard this voice say, let her go about my ex-wife. Mm -hmm. uh, just like you've grieved enough. It's time to be free. And I just, you know, walked and people were in front of me and behind me. And I just wept and breathed and took one step after another and felt something deeply unwind in my body uh, that hadn't unwound before um, mm -hmm. about holding on to my past and my pain. Sure. And, uh, and so for me, that was the profundity of it is, you know, once again, there's 
something about the Stations of the Cross, right? There's something about doing something really hard and knowing, like, probably won't die, but, you know, they'll carry me down to uh, if I fall over. But my choice is to, to give up and go back or to put one foot in front of the other and do something hard and trust that I will come through the other side of it. Um, and I've had some similar experiences in, in kind of the psychedelic world of very deep and difficult processes. Um, uh, this is a very different one cause it's just physical. I mean, I have friends, right. you know, who dance the sun dance, uh, who, you know, are held up by their chests and, you know, who, and I, uh, there's, there's a variety of ways to crack people open and most of them there's not a huge shortcut for like, you have yeah. to actually be willing to push yourself to some kind of edge and then mm -hmm. keep, keep going, uh, you know, through whatever hardship huh. it is. And so I, I, I loved that experience. I don't know if I need to climb another summit again, but right. I think things that take me to my edge, uh, and allow me to, and then also include space for that vulnerability, for that cracking open. Um, sure. you know, there's these grief ceremonies, Lawrence Cole, um, it's kind of, partially from an African tradition, but it's kind of modified for Western consumption. And there's a room set up and there's a, a grief altar. There's an anger altar for those who've been subject to abuse. Uh, there's an ancestral altar and there's a forgiveness altar. And hmm. basically there's some preparation that goes into preparing the space, but then this, this ceremony is probably four to five hours long. And you sing this song that's probably only 30 seconds long and people are drumming and singing and and it starts with the people who've done this before and they'll put up a hand and they'll go to the altar and they'll weep and they're not telling a story, they're not doing anything, they're just getting it out of their system and somebody stops singing and goes in and is there with them as close as they require. If they need a hand on their back, they can have that. If they just need someone witnessing them, they're there. When they're done... They go back into the circle and they sing the song. And so you sing this song over and over, four to five hours. Hmm. And it's this other way of breaking people down, uh, right. not through a pain ritual, or but simply you sing the song and you get in some kind of trance and you let whatever needs to come out, come out. And, mm -hmm. and then the next day you do it again <laughs> for another four hours. Right. And I, I have to say, I left that thing... Then the second day, it was like, "Oh, I'm ready. I'm, I'm, I'm going in." I left that thing feeling like a million bucks. Did you? And I think yeah. it's why people do CrossFit. It's why people do, you know, right. marathons. It's why people do Kilimanjaro. It's like yeah. our culture doesn't necessarily have these ways of finding your edge and pushing against it until your resistance dissolves. And it's the mm -hmm. same thing that happens when people are approaching death. Or they get to that point of like, here we are. Like, there's something that happens. The resistance falls away and you're allowed to be as vulnerable as you actually are. And there's a serious strength in that. So Yeah. Well, that's incredible. I my my dad, the reason I asked is uh I think maybe a year or two after you mm -hmm. or no, before uh a year or two before my dad's eighty two now just turned 82 he set this goal at 
he was going to climb Kilimanjaro at 75 years old. Uh-huh. And so that was the one experience that he was going to do to celebrate his 75th birthday was to climb Kilimanjaro. I'm not really sure why there, as opposed to something else. I think it's just, it's one, it's something you can do without oxygen, but it's yeah. like, you know, it isn't a technical climb like Everest would be or something like that, which would but be. But the getting to the peak is intense. Yes. And <laughs> it's, no, it's I'm not, intense. I'm not saying that like, just cause you don't need oxygen. No, but it's, that. A lot of yeah, people don't, don't get up there. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, but I was always intrigued with that. And, and he also had a very emotional experience at the summit and yeah. uh, speaks of it, uh, it, you know, just in terms of this goal, but just filled with gratitude in a way that was overwhelming in a sense, yeah. because of the shared experience with not just the, I don't know if you call them porters or what they call them, but also, you know, yeah. there's professionals the that help. Porters. The guides and porters. Yes. Yes. And then, but also the community oh, people that, and... yeah. So absolutely incredible. And I just wondered what your takeaway It's I'm not sure I would want to set that goal for myself necessarily just like as a, an achievement of age, but it became more of a journey. I think, uh, I, I think maybe I've caught him off guard in sense of like, I'm going to, he's very physical, very competitive, very, you know, he still competes in racquetball tournaments. He's still very, nice. very competitive. So, and very physical is very, wants to stay in shape. And I think he set a goal that was a huge uh, age defying almost thing. But yeah. I think almost immediately once he started the journey, it wasn't about that. It was about this other experience that maybe he wasn't fully expecting. I'm reading a lot into this, Glenn, but anyway. But it's it's uh, a deep internal powerful. journey. I think doing things that are really difficult, that require us to not give up. And there's something about being placed, you're in the middle of Tanzania. You can't, I mean, turning around there's something about that, like you're held. Like the person I know who does dance, his elder who teaches him, if he chickens out, if he doesn't do the Sundance, his teacher has to dance in his place. Hmm. And there's no way he is going to let that guy hang by his chest. Yeah. <laughs> you know, for three days. Right. So he's going to do it. And that's, it holds him in in the same way going that far away, being that far away from everything, like they're going to medevac, you'd have to be in a helicopter to, you know, and if it's medical necessity, it's one thing, but it's hard to quit once you're there. And there's something about that difficulty in going past your edge and yeah. redefining your edge and seeing how strong you are. And there's something, once again, I think it just releases something spiritually, emotionally that's, um, Really miraculous. Yeah. Glenn, I want to thank you. What a great way to get reconnected. I hope when you yeah, get back to Grand you. Rapids, uh, I hope to play the gardens next summer with either Toad or if you're through on a solo tour with Jonathan, I'd love to, yeah. uh, to do it again. I think we have, we're looking at stuff in the fall and I think Grand Rapids is on the list. So nice. Toad will be out in the fall. We were supposed to be out with Bare Naked Ladies in the summer, but that got, that's thrown back to 22 now. And yeah. uh, I can't believe it's 2022. I know. It's we're like, getting so I've been watching some Kubrick stuff and I was like, what? Huh? It's so crazy. 
just, but I remember thinking about the future in, in the eighties, you know, and you're like the future 2020, you know, like yeah. it seems so it far. was sci-fi all the way. When we'll talk about kid, space next time. Space 1999. <laughs> Remember that series? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Well, I'll see you when you get in town. Maybe we'll do All it right. again. We could do a portrait in the studio, do it formal, right? And sit down and then have a conversation. But, uh, which reminds me, I need to ask, uh, maybe I'll ask Adam. I need some type of press photo or portrait of you oh. that you might give out just so I can have it for the podcast page. Okay. If you don't have it, I'll, I think I'll they find have it. one on the Madison house. I'll go there. Sure. Yeah. Okay. It's, they have a media page. Great to see you, my friend. Great Take care. Thanks Take for care. doing this. Really Thank appreciate you. it. All right. Bye. Man, I really, really dug that conversation with Glenn. I, amazing over Zoom how you can cut to the chase uh, and really have an amazing conversation on a platform that I didn't think that was really possible until I... Uh, have guests like Glenn who are um, open to being vulnerable and sharing uh, some of the, the deepest parts of themselves. So thank you, Glenn, for that. Speaking of that photograph, the portrait, I need to uh, credit uh, Ashton Page, who's a photographer in Nashville, who's supplied the um, portrait of Glenn that we're using on his episode page. So check that out at fullexposurepodcast.com you'll see Glenn's episode page and I've also carved up the Zoom uh, video I did record the video stream of our Zoom conversation I've uh, carved that up into uh, mini excerpts that you can see at his fullexposurepodcast.com website uh, sorry artist landing page for Glenn Phillips and you'll get a sense of my basement that Glenn accused me of being uh, too clean and businesslike, and I'm still reeling from that. Um, I'm going to work through that. I'm going to think, I'm going to spend the rest of the pandemic thinking about that and just reminiscing and uh, really kind of to carve up why my space looks like that. But uh, anyway, more interestingly, you can see Glenn's guitars and see Glenn in this conversation. And uh, so head over fullexposurepodcast.com and check out all the rich multimedia over there. Uh, hey, everybody, you guys take it from here. Have a great week. Let's go get it, everybody. All right. The Full Exposure Podcast is brought to you by Metro Health, University of Michigan Health, and Dr. Peter Hahn, in appreciation of the creative and artistic visionaries who enrich our lives through cultural connections. <laughs>